The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Please pray with me. Father, there's so much rich theology in these verses that I I feel my inadequacy in trying to draw it out. It is a deep well of truth. And so I want to specifically ask for you for your assistance, Holy Spirit, that you would help my brothers and sisters and myself understand the implications of our unity with Christ. Lord, we don't want to just know factual information about theology. We don't want to just know about you. We want to know you. We want to better understand all that you've accomplished for us that we might set our mind on things above more regularly. And the things of this earth really would grow strangely dim. Lord, to that end, we ask for special grace that that Your Word would come alive in our hearts, in our minds, that we would see it with new eyes, with with a richer understanding. Lord, that we would understand all that You want us to understand in this passage. Lord, but I also want to pray for those among us who might not know you. Lord, you alone know our standing before you, whether we are truly saved or whether we're just faking it. And I pray if there's anyone here that that has yet to taste and see the freedom from sin, freedom from self, Lord, the, the hope that You in Your power would cause them to be born again through the seed of Your Word, that You would enlighten their eyes to see with faith that they might be freed from the burden that they have borne their entire life and find freedom even this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I, for one, enjoy a good... Uh, spy novel or spy movie. Um, that is if they're clean, but it's, <laughs> it's hard to find. Uh, but there are some out there. Um, one of the, the common themes, of course, in a spy movie is when they, they take on a new identity. Uh, they get a new passport, a new name, uh, sometimes even a new nationality, new birth date. They assume a, a different job. They, they assume they have a different family. Really, a, a person who's going undercover for the CIA has a, a whole new identity. They're a whole new person. But imagine with me if, if the CIA 
came across a hardened criminal, a man who'd grown up on the streets, and through that he'd gotten involved in organized crime and led just a awful life and eventually ended up on death row. And the CIA enlists that person to become their new secret agent. And for their task, they assign him to take on the identity of an ultra-wealthy, greatly respected and powerful businessman. And the cost of assuming this new identity would just quite simply be they would have to forsake their old one. They, They would need to conform fully to this new identity and forget what they once were. Now, of course, such a novel probably wouldn't sell because it's too outlandish, too ridiculous. But what's even more amazing is that the reality of what Christ offers us is far greater than that. Because, as you know, each one of us was were fast bound in sin. We were blind in our sin, slaves to all sorts of filth, and He has washed us clean and has set us apart to be not only His children, but to be co-heirs with Him. That is our new identity as we have been united to Christ. And if you were to die today and you were in Christ, you would be received into heaven as a conquering hero. Not because you've done anything, but because of what Christ has done. Because of His accomplishments, you will receive the honor of what He has done because you have now been united to Him. What belongs to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now belongs to you. And what was once yours, your sin, your shame, your disgrace, has been completely wiped clean. That is dead to you. And all of that will be forgotten, and all that will be remembered is what He has accomplished and the honor He has given you on account of that accomplishment. And so far in the book of Colossians, Paul has been trying to, to draw out the richness of the blessings of being united to Him. He's trying to come uh, to, to Christ. He's trying to combat some false teachers that were suggesting that Christ wasn't sufficient enough for their salvation or for their sanctification, but that they need to do additional things. And Paul is saying that is absolutely ridiculous because you can't get any greater than Christ. If you have Christ, you have all that you need. All a person needs is Christ. And that's because Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was the God man, God incarnate, who took on human flesh so that we could be reconciled to God through His vicarious death in our place. And therefore, His, his death was sufficient to completely wipe clean all of the sins we have committed or will ever commit. Of course, this now then brings up the obvious question. Well, if Christ has wiped our slate clean, if we are completely forgiven... And there's nothing more that we need to do to secure our destiny. Well, then what should we do? How should we live in light of the fact that we have can there's nothing left for us to do to be saved? How should we live? 
How does our union with Christ affect the way that we live now? And that is what Paul is going to explain in the second half of this letter. Chapters 1 through 2, you could say, were focusing on the doctrine of who Christ is. And chapters 3 through 4 are drawing out the implications of our unity with Christ. And he begins, of course, in these first four verses of chapter 3. And three things he emphasizes. First of all, he says we should seek our identity in Christ. What we shouldn't seek is our identity in this world any longer. And then thirdly, we need to know our true identity is still yet to be revealed. Let's look first of all that first point in verse 1 where he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul bases his exhortation in the phrase, or sorry, his exhortation to seek things that, that are above. He bases that exhortation not in some hypothetical, unfulfilled reality, but in something that has been fulfilled, something that has been accomplished, something that is done. Notice he says, you have been raised. So this is, this is something that has already happened. It's not future, it's present. Or you're actually, it's past, it's already been accomplished with present implications. And really, all the exhortations that Paul is going to lay out in the rest of this book are rooted in this reality. You have been raised with Christ. Now let's be honest. That doesn't seem to make much sense. Because it doesn't feel like we've been raised. In fact, we still will die. We still feel sin and its effects. We commit sin. We struggle with it. And moreover, we're still here on earth. How can we have been raised if we're still here? What, what Paul seems to be saying seems to con, con, have direct contrast with what our, our reality is. So how do we make sense of this? Well, there are many things in Scripture that, that seem to fly in the face of our experience. And this is, this is one of them. And we walk by faith, not by sight. If the Bible says this is what is true, we believe it. In a very real sense, therefore, we have been raised with Christ. We now have to ask the question, well, what does that mean? Well, our resurrected identity, we can say, is actually more real than our earthly identity. The most real part of us is not what we see or feel. And I say it's more real because it's, it's permanent. It's an everlasting reality versus our present experience, which will pass away. We live in the realm of death where everything dies. Eventually you will be forgotten too. But your real identity, your ultimate identity is that you have been raised and you are fast bound with Christ. 
So just as we might say shadows are less real than the objects that they outline, uh, your substance, your truest reality is bound up in Christ. So just for an example, when, when people share their testimonies, they often recount their past sins and their struggles. And we, we might, in hearing that, I'd say, hey, well, so-and-so was this, that's their identity, and now they're, just for, they're, they're forgiven sinners. And we might identify them with their past failures. But we, need to, we know that that was their old life, that now that they've been saved, they have a new identity. They're a truly a different person. They're a new creation. In a very real sense, that's not who they are now, right? If you knew what I was like before I was a believer, you probably would not like me. And I know that's the case of probably most of us. As, as I hear testimonies, even our community group, I'm like, I probably wouldn't have liked you either. And it's just true because we were just filled with selfishness and pride and arrogance. And we hurt people without any regard to the consequence. But that's not who we are now. We've been changed. But the reality is, even more so, our new identity, we ourselves don't fully know. We, we can tell there's been changes in our life, but the truest essence of who we are is something we still have not yet understood. It'll be revealed, as Paul says, when Christ is revealed in verse four. It's our identity is still somewhat hidden from us. But he exhorts believers to live in light of this new identity that is yet to be revealed. Notice what he says. Because we've been raised, seek the things that are above. Well, the word seek quite simply means to look for something. But in, but in the Bible, that phrase often refers to pursuing something with diligent effort to obtain a desired objective. A person strives with all of their mind, with all of their energy to lay hold of what they're seeking. Note, for instance, how the word is used in Romans 2, verse 6. Paul writes regarding God, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Consider also how Jesus uses the word seek in John 5. When he speaks to the Pharisees who were seeking to kill him, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And Jesus himself said, I seek not my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Note especially Matthew 6.33. And I think this is the essence of what Paul is exhorting the Colossians to here in verse 1, chapter 3. He says in Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Seek God. Seek His righteousness, His interests, His glory, and His purposes, no longer your own. 
So to seek the things above is to seek things of eternal significance, recognizing that everything in this life is passing away. You, you can't stop the effects of sin. Decay. Loss. Death. And therefore, we shouldn't live for those things that are passing away. They're going to pass away. Even the best blessings we have will not last, except for those that are in Christ. And so we shouldn't live for those things, but rather the things that matter, the things that will last. Notice the location of those things that we're to seek. He says, they're things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christ here is depicted as the conquering ruler, the one who has absolute authority over everything that's going on. He's co-ruling with God, the Father Almighty. And Paul is saying this there, that location, that is your real home. That is where you have been raised to. That's where your citizenship lies. That is where your significance lies. It doesn't lie in the petty, worthless things of this world. All the things that people might admire. That's not where your significance is because that's perishing. And ultimately it's vain. It's empty. No, you have eternal significance. You just don't fully recognize it yet because it hasn't been revealed. Christ has not just made you a citizen of his eternal kingdom. Recognize he's made you a co-ruler with him. In his eternal kingdom. And we need to recognize that. So if we are to recognize that, how will that affect our lives? I mean, practically, what does it look like to seek the things that are above? Well, I think it means we need to set our hopes, our ambitions, our desires, our, our energy, our life ambitions on knowing and following Christ. Knowing Him, knowing all that the Bible reveals about Him and, and our relationship with Him and pursuing His redemptive plan. Living for His interests no longer for our own. His needs need, his, sorry, His aims need to be our aims. And what we live for, what we seek to accomplish. When you wake up in the morning, you have some aim in your mind. Could be just to relax, could be to just have a good time, could be to make money, could be to get people to like you more. What, what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. Your ultimate aim should be to serve Christ. To live for him and for his glory. Like Jesus, because we, we don't seek our own glory any longer. Our own interest. But the glory of him who sent us. And this is how Paul articulated the change in what he seeks. We read this in Philippians chapter 3. You can look at it again in verse 7. He said, But whatever gain I had, all those successes, all those accomplishments, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. I get it all loss because of the surpassing grace. Greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. So I don't want any of it anymore. I've left it behind. And he did this so that he may know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection, that he'd share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
so that by any means possible he would attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, I don't live for any of the things I used to live for. All the glory that comes from man, the one thing I do is I pursue Christ-likeness. I can't wait, he says, until I achieve the resurrection of the dead. And so that, that's his whole aim. And then in verse 19 of chapter 3, he contrasts the pursuit of his life with those of false teachers, fake believers. He says, their end is destruction because their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see the connection Paul makes to live for things above, to set, to seek the things above means you don't live for the perishing things of this, this world, but you live for Christ. Now, there, there are things the things we typically aim at in our lives are the things that, that we think are going to bolster our identities, strengthen our identities, strengthen our reputation, our, our worth in the eyes of others. And there are many things people wrap their identity in, where they work, their position at work, how much money they make, who they're related to. And some people, it's the car they drive their physical appearance, their academic degrees. We can almost put our identity in so many things, but the reason we seek those things is because that's where we think worth and value is found. I mean, when you meet a stranger, I mean, what is it that you want them to know about you? I think many of us are, are clever enough not to go out of our way and say, I want you to know all these great things about me, because then we would immediately be seen as just arrogant. But in your heart, what is it they want, that you want them to know about you? Because what you want them to know really shows what you think is most important. What you really think is worthy or valuable. What you most, you, you seek with your life, with your resources, with your time, shows what you really think is significant. And Paul is saying here that since we have now been united to Christ... We've taken on his identity. Our identity is not any longer in our accomplishments, in what other people think of us. Our identity is completely bound up in him. Because what we once lived for will eventually just be forgotten. Right? We used to live to make mud pies in the slum because we had no idea what was meant to have a holiday at the sea. And we had no idea the richness of that, that, that we could be called to be ambassadors of the living God. And so we leave those mud pies behind and we seek to serve him. And this is what Paul continues to address in verse two, where he says, essentially, don't seek your identity in this world any longer. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Essentially, he's just repeating the same idea, but emphasizing the negative here. But notice that he that he uses a slightly different phrase than he did in verse one. There he said, seek the things that are above. Here he says, set your minds 
on things above. So, so what does that mean? Well, quite simply, it just means to have a heavenly mindset. Uh, to have the same mindset that Christ had. In fact, the, the word that's used in Philippians chapter 2 is the same word that's used here. It's phreneo, where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Paul's saying that needs to be your mindset. A heavenly mindset means serving God, not your own interest. Consider how Christ uses the word in his rebuke of Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for, this is why he needs to get behind him, why he's a hindrance to Christ, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right? To set our mind on the things of man, the glories of man, the things that men war over, is to set ourselves in opposition to Christ. So you see this, the contrast in mindset. To have mindset on things above means to have a mind that is, that is set on pleasing God, but a mind that is set on things below is a mind set on seeking self-glory. Now, now, if God provides you with blessings such as honor, a good reputation, wealth, don't, don't begrudge those blessings. Right? King David and Daniel and Joseph, God gave them those blessings. And when God gives us blessings, he wants to enjoy, us to enjoy them. So enjoy those things. Right? First Timothy chapter 4. God created everything to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So if God blesses you, don't feel guilty for that. Enjoy those blessings. They're a blessing from God. But don't set your heart on those blessings. Don't think that your identity is bound up in those blessings. Rather, just appreciate them for what they are as passing blessings. Right. Just as just like if you're out and out working in the yard and then a cool breeze comes blowing in and you're refreshed by it, you enjoy it for the moment. But, you know, it's passing and it eventually might go away. And that's how we should see the blessings that God gives us as just things he wants us to enjoy, but not to hold on to and especially not to set our identity in. When an athlete gets traded to another team. In professional sports, they no longer are accumulating uh, positive statistics for their old team. They're all of all of their investment, all of their production is, is for their new team. Likewise, when you get hired by another employer, you don't work for your old employer anymore. Right. All of your energies are bent on helping this new employer have success to make money, to be productive. And likewise, we need to consider ourselves as traded from the world to now belonging to Christ. Or to being laid off by the world and now hired by Christ to be his servant, his slave. Or to use Paul's word here, we need to consider ourselves as dead to the world. And alive to Christ. I used to be under the employment of Satan and pursuing worldly ambitions, 
the same ambitions the prince of the, this world have, has. But now your services belong completely to Christ. Right? 1 Corinthians six nineteen. You are not your own. You have been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We need to realize we don't have the freedom to live for ourselves. In fact, that's what we've been given freedom from. Now we are called to live wholly and completely for Him. Right? As Jesus said, when people wanted to know what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, He made it very clear, whoever would save his life will lose it. It's gone. It's done. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All right, Nate Saint, one of the missionaries who was killed in, in, the, in the 50s by some natives in Ecuador, wrote, People who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries. They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble is burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years that they have wasted. Similarly, Jim Elliott, his co-laborer, said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So one then might conclude, well, seeking things above then must simply mean I need to pursue ministry. If I'm just pursuing ministry with my life, all my free time is going into serving other people, then I'm okay. But we need to be careful because that may be true, but it also may not be true. Because there are many people who can invest themselves in ministry, but do so wholly out of self-interest rather than the interest of Christ. Right. In contrast with Timothy, Paul said that all the other pastors that the Philippians knew seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's talking about other Bible teachers. He said they're not seeking your interests. The only one he can refer to them is Timothy. All right. A person can teach a Sunday school class just because they want to show off their knowledge, because they they want to be respected by their students. They, they could go out and do evangelism simply because they want to win arguments with unbelievers. Or they just want to prove that they have courage to other Christians. That they're willing to at least share the gospel. Or a person can stand up and preach simply because they want to exercise influence other people. Or they just want to be in a position of prominence. We can do almost anything, any good thing with self-seeking motives. So how can we know? How do we know if in our ministry we're seeking things above or just seeking our own interests? Well, I think first we just have to assume. We have to assume that we probably at least initially are not. Because we're prone to self-worship, even after being born again. Don't assume that your heart has Christ's interests in mind. Because the heart is desperately wicked, right? Who can know it? Right? Paul says, I don't even judge myself. He says, I, I, I don't see anything in myself that would lead me to think that I'm serving Christ out of ill motives. But I don't judge myself. 
right? And of course, Proverbs warns us that a fool is the one who's wise in his own eyes. So we need to just be aware that our tendency, we just need to be honest, our tendency is to exalt ourselves. And so we need to see in this ministry, is there any vestige of self? And if there is, of course, we need to acknowledge that, confess that to the Lord and repent from it. And then continue in serving that person you want to serve. Secondly, we need to be very clear about our goal. What is it that you're seeking to achieve in your ministry? Right? And even as you imagine the effects, as you dream about the effects, so to speak, the results of your ministry. Are you dreaming about people being impressed by you? People respecting you more? Or is it that somebody seeing Christ with new eyes, seeing people grow, seeing people take delight in Him, worshiping Him, seeing people rejoice, is the end for yourself? Or is it that people would know and love Christ more? I mean, here's some dating advice (laughs) along these lines. For those of you who are in that spot in your life, If you go into a relationship trying just simply to impress another person, it's just absolute foolishness. Instead, seek that person's interests. It's the same thing with ministry. Don't seek to bring about, to to achieve people's respect. Just have your mind solely focused on that other person's best interests. Because that's what love does. Love does. Anything that's trying to gain admiration is just self-worship. It's selfish. It's not love. It's the opposite of love. Right? Love just simply says, what can I do to bring about this person's self-interest? And so I use dating examples. Like that's what our dating relationships would look like. When I do premarital counseling with couples, I say, that is what, that's how you know if you're really meant to be with this person. Are you do, willing to do whatever it takes to meet this person's best interest? That means what sacrifice are you willing? Or are you just trying to get this person to like you because you're attracted to them? If that's the case, that marriage is going to tank or it's just going to be hard. A way we commonly fail in this regard is, is when we confront others in sin, right? This is, a, this is an aspect of ministry. We're called to serve one another when we see other people sin. And often... As Christians, we get offended by somebody else and we get offended because we're sinned against. And so we want to do our faithful duty in confronting them, helping them see how they've sinned against Christ and how they've offended us. And so we strategize and how we can best help them see their error and how they can best come to grips with understanding how much they've hurt us. And we imagine them just grieving over the hurt that they've brought. And humbly acknowledging their offense. And in such cases, our minds might be fully convinced that in confronting this other person, we're seeking Christ's interest, right? We're confronting sin. But in reality, what we're really doing is we're just seeking vengeance. And we're justifying sinful vengeance under a cloak of ministering to Christ, for Christ. And just like the Pharisees, who were consumed with pride and sought to kill Christ. That's the very same thing we're doing. And that's the same word that's actually used. Judas sought to find a way to have Christ 
imprisoned. The Pharisees sought a way to kill him. They set their minds on things below. And therefore they sought to kill Christ. And Paul's saying, no, set your mind on things above in the interests of other people, loving other people. And so we can easily be deceived in thinking we're seeking things above while seeking the things below, just like Judas, just like the Pharisees. I mean, even Martha, right? She rebuked Christ and commanded him to tell Mary to, to get with it. And he said, and he gently rebuked her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about so many things, but only one thing's necessary. And Mary's found it. Martha was focused on her interests, not Christ's interests. But Mary found the one thing that she needed to be focused on. And so I think in this, as we seek to minister to people, the simplest way to know if our heart's in the right place is just ask yourself, are you seeking true worship? Are you seeking to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to help others love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Not just simply obey Him, but love Him. Obey from the heart. Right? Love seeks not its own. Right? Love seeks to die to its self-interests. As Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. And the reason we should set our ambitions and desires and hopes on heavenly things is because we have died with Christ. Right? Dead people are done with their pursuits. Alexander the Great is no longer conquering the world anymore. Caesar's done in ruling over Rome. Napoleon Bonaparte not making any more progress in his imperial ambitions. Right? They're done. They're in the grave. Dead people are done with their pursuits. Their lives are other, they're over. Brothers and sisters, you are dead to that old life, to those worldly pursuits. You're done with them. You don't pursue that stuff anymore. Your life, your identity, your significance is no longer found in anything that this world admires. It's bound up in what Christ has accomplished for you. As Paul said, I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Or as Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the reason we should seek the things which are above and set our mind on things above is because we have died. Our identity is no longer bound to the things of this world. But even more important, we should seek the things that are above because that is where our identity is. But it's hidden. This brings us to the third point. Know your identity is yet to be revealed. Paul says, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ is your life appears, then you will all appear with him in glory. In other words, our real substance, our identity and glory is far more glorious than we can comprehend. You don't even know how glorious your identity really is. Again, just compare Christ at his first coming with 
Christ is second. Or we didn't see Him as He truly was in His first coming. His true nature, His glory was veiled. As Isaiah writes, Who has believed what He has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who knew this is what the arm of the Lord, the might and power of God looked like? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire in Him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. He had no former majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. That was Christ's first company. Coming. That was Christ veiled in human flesh. Contrast this with the risen Christ revealed in his full glory in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands was one standing like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And likewise, because you have been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection... Your true glory is still yet to be revealed. Because you have not fully experienced that resurrected body. What it will be is still yet to be revealed. 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him, like Revelation 1. And this is because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I mean, more than this, recall Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17, 22, he says, speaking to the Father, the glory that you have given to me, the glory that Christ possesses, the second person of of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. God has given His glory to us. That they may be one even as we are one. So what will this glory be like? We don't get much description. But Paul does say this in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation can't wait to see what you're going to look like. Daniel says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, that is your identity. And that is your real identity, more real than your identity today. Because you're united with Christ. You are partakers of eternal glory. And nothing can take that away from you. Because your life is hidden with Christ and God. And because of that, it's hidden. Your true value is hidden. Nobody sees it. You don't even see it. It's hidden. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. But of course, this only applies to those who have truly trusted in Christ, who have truly been born again, whose hearts have been changed, who now genuinely want to live for Christ and no longer for themselves. And so you have to ask yourself, does that include you? Are you truly one of the saints? Or are you just a faker? Just interested in learning more about Jesus? Interested in learning more about Christianity and you contemplate the benefits of obedience to Christ, but you've not yet fully surrendered yourself. In Revelation 3.16, Jesus says that he will he will vomit lukewarm worshipers out of his mouth. Those who are half-hearted, still wanting to live for the things of this world and Living for Christ whenever it's convenient for them. He says they'll receive none of the benefits Christ offers. And rather than receiving glory, they will experience for eternity shame and eternal wrath. And if this is you, unless you repent, this will be your destiny. And you will be eternally reminded in your torment that you are this close. You are this close to receiving the glory that all those saints have that will never fade away, that will never be stripped from them. And you could have had it. You could have had it, but there was something. There was something holding you back. And you need to know what that is. What is it that holds you back from trusting in Christ? From receiving the eternal glory that He has offered to you? Is it a girlfriend? A boyfriend? Just wanting people to like you? Some kind of sin? Popularity? Just your own pride? 
And ask yourself, what is it that holds you back from surrendering your life to Christ? What is it that means so much to you that you would forsake eternal glory to have it just for a moment? What is it that you think is more valuable than what Christ has purchased on your behalf? Let's pray. Lord, if there's anybody here that is in that place that is still holding on to something vain, Lord, we pray that You would just help them to see how, how silly and foolish that is. And You give them eyes to see what You have purchased. You give them eyes to see why You came. Because You wanted us to share in Your eternal glory with the Father and the Spirit. And I pray that You would give them eyes to see so that they may board again and that they will share in the fellowship that we have as saints with You now and forevermore. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.